Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you'd like to support the ministries of Rancho Church as we advance the cause of Christ together, you may do so at rancho.tv giving. Enjoy. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back here speaking to all of you. And uh, for 34 years now, we had reasons to believe have been providing new evidences, new reasons to believe from the frontiers of uh, nature and science that there is a God out there that loves us and wants a relationship with us. We now have a 24-7 YouTube channel where you can watch thousands of uh, video clips and debates uh, and share them with your friends. And each one of the scholars at Reasons to Believe has a Facebook and a Twitter page where they post some of these latest new reasons to believe and where you can ask questions. And another way you can engage us is by going to reasons.org slash Ross, or you can put in Rana if you want his books. And there we're giving away free chapters of the books that we've written over the years. And at the table outside, you'll actually see this little card that you can grab and fill out. And if you do that, we'll give you a free copy of our latest DVD, Reconciling Genesis and Science. You'll see a little bit of that uh, this evening, but if you want the full story, uh, get this uh, DVD. encourage you to watch it, but also to share it with your friends or give it away to someone who needs these new reasons. What I've come this morning to talk about are cosmic reasons to believe not just in a God, but a personal God and in a redeeming God. Cosmic reasons to believe in Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. And this is kind of the outline I'm going to be following, giving you the evidences from the latest discoveries in astronomy that there must be a God beyond space and time who created everything. Then I'm going to segue into the latest evidences for a personal and loving God, taking you from deism to theism, and finally, uh, the evidences that well, we have a redeeming God that has created everything for our benefit. Now, part of my story, I was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, however, my parents really did stress morality, and I certainly benefited from that. And uh, I got interested in astronomy when I was seven years of age. In fact, starting at age seven, I was reading about five books on physics and astronomy a week. And uh, one of the books I read when I was seven was a brand new book at that time put out by Fred Hoyle called Nature of the Universe. And uh, in that uh, book, um, he had two chapters where he had a blistering attack on the Bible and the Christian faith. But in those chapters, he made this statement. There's a good deal of cosmology in the Bible. It is a remarkable conception. And uh, I remembered that statement. I didn't pick up a Bible until I was 17. Uh, that happened after my astronomy convinced me that there had to be a beginning to the universe. And I actually began to look for that God first in the writings of the great philosophers, especially Immanuel Kant and Rene Descartes, and uh, found that they didn't quite have everything correct, and went into the holy books of the different religions of the world, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Zoroastrianism, Baha'i, etc. Finally, I picked up a Bible. Uh, the Gideons actually came to our public school, so I had a Bible in my possession. And I recognized that what Hoyle said uh, in the book that I read when I was seven was true. Compared to all the other holy books, the religions of the world, the Bible says more than 10 times as much about the origin and history of the universe. And there's four basic things that the Bible speaks about concerning the universe. One that most of you are familiar with is that it talks about how the universe has a beginning. 
and not just any kind of beginning, but a beginning of space and time itself. I mean, you have that sentence at the opening of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word create means to bring into existence something brand new that didn't exist before. Uh, I tried to find the word universe in the Old Testament. It's not there. There is no biblical Hebrew word for universe, but you got this phrase, the heavens and the earth, used nine times in the Old Testament, always referring to the totality of physical reality. In the New Testament, we see in Hebrews, the universe that we can detect did not come from that which we can detect and that we can detect matter, energy, space, and time. Many passages of the Bible actually speak about an actual beginning and creation of time. Now, I was reading these passages in the Bible at the same time that physicists in Britain and South Africa were developing the first of the space-time theorems. Today, we have over 30 of these theorems. Matter of fact, I, for those of you that are interested, I brought one of these uh, theorems uh, with me. Uh, inflationary space-times are not uh, past incomplete. I mean, this is an incredible paper. You just, you, you just can't put it down once you start getting into it. Uh, the equations are some of the most uh, brilliant and beautiful that I've ever seen. But it ends with a passage uh, or a paragraph that we can all comprehend, and this is a summary. It basically concludes that any universe that expands on average throughout its history has a space-time beginning, implying a causal agent outside of space and time that creates our universe of matter, energy, space, and time. Now, these physicists actually did find models of the universe that did not require this causal agent, but every one of them was a universe that would not permit the existence of life. And only in a universe that expands on average throughout its history is physical life possible. Now, one of these three authors actually wrote a book a year and a half later, and this is what he said about the theorem that he and his colleagues had produced. He said, quote, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. And the problem he was referring to is that proof of a space-time beginning implies a causal agent beyond space and time who creates our universe of space, time, matter, and energy. In other words, a transcendent God must exist. There must be an agent outside of space and time that created our universe. And for what it's worth, most of my colleagues in astronomy and physics concede this point. They're deists, they're not atheists. They do believe that there's this agent they may not refer to him as God, but the causal agent outside of space and time that created our universe. But it raises a question. Is this transcendent causal agent a personal being? And did he design the universe and our planet Earth for our existence and in particular for our redemption? And as much as the Bible says about the beginning of the universe, it actually says much more about the expansion of the universe. Here are a few of those passages. You won't find it in Genesis, but it is in the oldest book of the Bible, Job 9.8, where it says that God is the one that expands the universe. He's the one that stretches out the heavens. And yes, most of these passages in the English translation use the phrase the stretching out of the heavens. But the verb there is the verb nata, 
which means the expansion of what's being described. And these passages put that verb natah in all three Hebrew verb forms, implying that these are not figures of speech. They're literal statements about the fact that we live in a continuously expanding universe. And it's not just me, a 21st century astronomer, reading this into the text. Jewish theologians writing 800, 900 years ago also drew the same conclusion that this book, the Bible, speaks about a continuously expanding uh, universe. And what's remarkable about this, for thousands of years, the Bible is the only book of science or history or theology making this statement about the universe. The Bible literally stood alone in declaring we live in an expanding universe until the 20th century. So this is one of the more remarkable statements in the Bible predicting future scientific discoveries. Now, I've written a book, The Crater in the Cosmos, where I document the best evidence we have today, excuse me, that we have today, that we live in a continuously expanding universe. I don't have time to give you the best evidence, but I will briefly show you a visual demonstration. And it's thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope. And so here are two such images. And the one on the left, we're looking at galaxies 12 billion light years away which means we're seeing this state of the universe as it was 12 billion years ago. And what you notice is the galaxies at that time are jammed so tightly together, they're ripping spiral arms off one another. But in that second slide to the right, we're now looking at galaxies only 2 billion light years away. So there's 10 billion years of cosmic expansion between them. And I put both of these slides to the same spatial scale. So you can see on the right how the galaxies have moved apart from one another. And now it's a rare phenomena for a galaxy to rip a spiral arm off of another galaxy. If you go to the NASA website, you'll see dozens of these images at different look-back times, demonstrating that indeed the universe has been continuously expanding throughout its history. And seven places in the Bible it tells us that we live in a universe where the laws of physics do not change. One of the more explicit texts is what you see in Jeremiah 33. And if you read the whole chapter, we have God complaining about the Jews, saying, you Jews change your mind all the time. But I'm a God that doesn't change. As evidence that I'm a God that doesn't change, look at the laws that govern the heavens and the earth. As they don't change, I don't change. And you can go to Ecclesiastes and Romans and other passages to see the same support for these fixed laws of physics. And for what it's worth, we astronomers can actually look back in time and measure the laws of physics in these distant stars and galaxies, and it shows that the laws of physics indeed have not changed over the history of the universe to 16 places of the decimal. Another demonstration of what the Bible said thousands of years ago, we can now prove by measurements, is indeed correct. And it tells us in Romans 8 and in great detail in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of those laws of physics is a pervasive law of decay. Ecclesiastes says everything in the universe is decaying. The galaxies are decaying. The stars are decaying. Our planet is decaying. All life is decaying. We human beings are decaying. I mean, look at one another. You can all see evidence of ongoing decay. I was here five years ago. I'm much more decayed now than I was back then. We're all undergoing this decay. But this has an implication for the universe. If the universe has a space-time beginning, where the universe continuously expands from that space-time beginning, 
Under laws of physics that don't change, where one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay, that implies that the universe must get colder and colder in a highly predictable way. It's the same principle of your car engine. When the piston chamber expands, the temperature goes down and the gasoline stops burning. It's a principle that applies to everything in the universe. Meaning that if we know the age of the universe and the expansion rate, we get a predicted cooling curve for the universe. And this is that predicted cooling curve of how the universe will get colder and colder as it gets older and older. And overlapping that curve are actual measurements we astronomers have made of the past temperature of the universe. And what you see is that the measurements fit the biblically predicted line, showing that we can not only demonstrate that the Bible is accurate in what it qualitatively predicts about the universe, but even accurate about what it quantitatively predicts about the universe. And this is where the Bible stands alone, the only holy book that actually and consistently predicts future scientific discoveries. And today we know the dominant feature that governs the expansion of the universe. It's something called dark energy. How many have ever heard of dark energy? Could I see your hand? Have you ever heard of dark energy? Okay, it looks like a good 15% of you have heard of dark energy. For the other 85%, don't feel embarrassed. It wasn't discovered until 1999. But today we know that dark energy makes up 71% of all the stuff in the universe. It's the dominant component of the universe. What is it? It's energy that's embedded in the space surface of the universe. And as that space surface gets bigger and bigger as the universe expands, dark energy becomes more progressively powerful and expanding the universe. And everything expands with the universe. Did you know that your waistline expands as the universe expands? <laughs> and by the way, next year it's gonna expand more rapidly than it did in the previous year. However, you can only blame a little less than a quadrillionth of an inch per year on the dark energy feature. Any expansion beyond that has got a different cause. <laughs> but this dark energy must be crucially fine-tuned if the universe were to expand at a slightly slower rate, then the universe, gravity, would collect all the stuff of the universe and collapse it into nothing but black holes and neutron stars, where the density is so extreme that atoms are impossible, and of course life would be impossible. Expand the universe at a slightly greater rate than what we observe, the universe would expand so rapidly from the cosmic creation event Gravity would not be able to collect any of the cosmic gas. The universe for forever would be nothing but dispersed gas without galaxy stars and planets. To what degree must we fine-tune it to get the stars and planets we need for life? We have to fine-tune it to one part in 10 to the 122nd power. This literally ranks as the greatest fine-tuning evidence we see that anywhere in the sciences that we can measure. And to put that in perspective, I want to compare that one part in 10 to the 122nd power to the very best example that we human beings have achieved in our creativity and design. And right now that ranks as the LIGO instrument, a gravity wave telescope so exquisitely designed that it can make measurements of a tenth the diameter of a proton over a length scale of four kilometers. Phenomenal instrument. And yet we compare the fine-tuning design in uh, this instrument 
with a fine-tuning design we see in dark energy to make our existence possible, what we humans achieved has ranked 10 trillion 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 times inferior to what we see in dark energy. And I can put it this way. What this demonstrates is that the one that designed dark energy for our personal benefit at a minimum is 10 to the 97 times more intelligent and more knowledgeable than the Caltech and MIT physicists that invented and designed this machine. And I was on the faculty of Caltech for five years. I can tell you these individuals uh, are not stupid. They rank as some of the most intelligent and well-educated people on the planet. Yet the one that designed dark energy is 10 to the 97 times minimum more intelligent and more knowledgeable than they are. Or I could put it another way. The one that designed dark energy at a minimum is 10 to the 97 times better funded than the US government <laughs> that made the construction of this instrument possible. And I think you're getting my drift here. We're not simply talking about a transcendent causal agent, but a personal being, because only a personal being can manifest the attributes of intelligence and knowledge and creativity and power, and does so to a degree that's orders and orders of magnitude beyond anything we human beings are capable of. Which means we actually have demonstrated that this causal agent is a personal being. And this conclusion is not only being drawn by people like myself, who are Christian astronomers, but even by my colleagues uh, who are uh, atheistic in the worldview perspective. And I have with me a paper published by three theoretical physicists, every one of them an atheist, and the title of their paper is Disturbing Implications of a Cosmological Constant, which is another term for dark energy. And when this paper was published, it caught the attention of another famous atheist, Philip Ball. He was the physics editor for the journal Nature, the most prestigious journal in science in the world. And he interviewed these three uh, uh, astrophysicists. And I'm going to share with you a couple of the quotes uh, that they made in the interview. And by the way, you can go to Nature News and read the interview for yourself. It's up there on the website. But one quote is, arranging the cosmos as we think it is arranged, said the team, would have required a miracle. And Philip Ball commented, that's a remarkable statement coming from three that identify themselves as atheists. But they went on to say, an unknown agent beyond space and time intervened in the evolution that is the history of the universe for reasons of its own, which explains the title of their paper, Disturbing Implications. Being atheists, the idea that a dark energy is real, there must be this agent beyond space and time performing miracles for reasons of his own so utterly disturbing that they concluded their research paper with this final sentence. Perhaps the only reasonable conclusion is that we do not live in a world that is a universe with a true cosmological constant, that is, with dark energy. The irony of this paper Within nine months after it was published, we astronomers came up with nine independent observational demonstrations that not only does dark energy exist, it's the dominant component of the universe. And I've written a short article on each one of these nine demonstrations, and I've written them for lay people. You can see them on our website. Uh, but this is the subject matter for those uh, nine 
observational demonstrations. And uh, you can go to that uh, URL at the bottom there, and that will be your gateway uh, to look at those nine articles. Matter of fact, you'll now see 25, because today we have 25 observational demonstrations that dark energy is real and the dominant component of the universe. What does that mean? It means we really are looking at a God beyond space and time that is performing miracles for reasons of its own, and in particular, for our personal benefit. And dark energy is not the only feature of the universe where we see this compelling evidence for supernatural design. Beginning in 1991, our scientific team, in going through the scientific literature, found 17 different features of the universe and the laws of physics that revealed a similar remarkable degree of fine-tuning design. And you can see in this table here, so every year goes by, the list gets longer and longer and longer, demonstrating what we see in Job and Psalms, that the more we learn about nature, the more evidence we'll uncover for the supernatural handiwork of God. And again, this has not gone unnoticed uh, amongst those who are not yet believers in the astronomical community. Paul Davies, an agnostic astronomer, wrote in his book, The Cosmic Blueprint, the impression of design is overwhelming. And you can actually read about some of these evidences in my book, The Creator and the Cosmos. We're giving away for free at chapter 15. And if you were to come into my office at Reasons to Believe, you would see I got about 50 books written by different astronomers on this fine-tuning evidence uh, for this uh, personal entity. But what's interesting about the books that they've written is that they stop at the level of the universe. And what we realize that reasons to believe, if we see this level of fine-tuning design on the scale of the universe, we would anticipate we'd also see it on all size scales. And indeed we do. Not only must the universe be fine-tuned for our existence, our galaxy cluster has to be fine-tuned. <clears throat> we astronomers have observed tens of thousands of clusters of galaxies. We live in the local group, and it's got features unlike any other galaxy cluster. We're literally living in the only galaxy cluster in the universe that's a candidate for advanced life. And how many of you have ever seen one of those Star Wars movies? I'll bet you I'll get more than 15% this time. But, you know, if you've watched those Star Wars movies, they all open up with this sentence that flies up in front of you in a galaxy far, far away. Well, we astronomers have looked at galaxies far, far away. We've yet to find one that's sufficiently like our Milky Way galaxy that it could be a candidate for advanced life. This is a map astronomers have made of the structure of our Milky Way galaxy. It's the only galaxy we see with spiral arms, where the spiral arms are symmetrical, where the spiral arms have been undisturbed for the past 10 billion years, where the spiral arms are just the right distance apart, where we get the just right ratio of uh, dark ma uh, matter to ordinary matter in our galaxy. It's the only galaxy. And then we have to have a just right star. For 60 years, astronomers have been looking for a sufficient twin of the star that it could be a candidate to have a planet orbiting at which advanced life exists. They've found many stars that are twins of one another, but they've yet to find a twin of the sun. And then we look at our planets. And today we have found over 4,000 planets outside of our solar system. We began to discover them in 1995, 
And I remember at that time, astronomers were saying, we're going to find a whole bunch of planets that are just like the planets in our solar system. Well, here it is, 2020. We've yet to find a single planet outside the solar system that's like any of the planets in our solar system. And it's led to an amazing discovery. Not only must our planet be designed to make our existence possible, Mars must be designed, Jupiter must be designed. Every one of the eight planets in our solar system plays a critical role in making it possible for you to be sitting here in this uh, meeting today. So when our family celebrates Thanksgiving, uh, before we eat the turkey, we thank God for Uranus, for Neptune, for Jupiter, for Saturn, for Mercury, for Venus, because we realize we need every one of them in order to have that turkey in front of us. And over 400 different features of the Earth had to be fine-tuned. I've written books on this, and even our moon. There is no other moon like our moon. Our moon, compared to the mass of our planet, is 50 times bigger than any other known moon. And because we have such a gigantic single moon orbiting close to our planet Earth, we have a stable rotation tilt axis. The other planets, whether they've got moons or not, their rotation axis does this. And of course, a stable tilt is crucial for existence here on our planet. And just like we did with the features of the universe, we've been looking at the scientific literature to see fine-tuned features in our galaxy, in our star, in our planet. And as you can see in the last column, uh, the probability of finding a body anywhere in the entire universe that has the capability of supporting not just human life. This is a chart for what you need to get bacteria to exist on a planet for a significant period of time. And shows that today over 676 features must be fine-tuned to get these bacteria. And the probability of finding a body anywhere in the entire vast universe that has the features to make this possible less than one chance in 10 to the 556th power. Now to put this in context, what this demonstrates is that as every month goes by, the evidence for the fine-tuning design of our galaxy and our planetary system to make our existence possible, just the existence of bacteria possible, goes up by at least a factor of a thousand times per month. I mean, where else can you go in Christian evidences and find a thousand times more evidence with every passing month? This is a place where you can find it. So when I'm on a university campus speaking to skeptics, I tell the skeptics, if you're not persuaded today, wait one month and see what happens to the evidence. And if you want to follow that, we make it available. On my Twitter page, for example, I give you links to the latest science research papers that are giving us more evidence for this design. And you can see it documented by going to reasons.org slash fine tuning. There we list the evidences and we give you links to the research papers so you can check it out for yourself. But this is what Freeman Dyson had to say about this evidence. Uh, a physicist uh, here in, the Umer in America says, the more I examine the universe, more, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known that we were coming. In other words, the universe was designed in advance for our appearance. Over the entire history of the universe, we got this God controlling and designing and fine-tuning the elements of the universe to make possible our existence. Now, a couple of years ago, I was on an airplane, and seated beside me uh, was a quantum physicist from Germany who announced himself as an atheist and a skeptic. 
And when he found out who I was, he started peppering me with questions about the universe. One of the questions he fired my way was this. If there is this God that you say exists, why is he subjecting the universe and all of us to so much decay? After all, decay is unpleasant. Why would a good God do this? So I explained to him that you can't have stars without a very high measure of decay in the universe. And without stars, we can't live. We need a high measure of decay for us to be able to digest our food so we can do work. I also pointed out that this rate of decay is not so high as to discourage us from productive work. But neither is it so low as to let sin go unrestrained and got to share with them what you see in the third chapter of the Bible, how our original parents, Adam and Eve, the progenitors of all humanity, were in the Garden of Eden and they were in a morally perfect state, but they used their free will to rebel against God and begin to experience sin. And when they did, God spoke to them and said, from now on, you're going to be experiencing more pain, more work, and more wasted time in proportion to the sin that you commit. Now, he meant this uh, in a generic way, that this applies to human civilization as a whole. Any of you who've had children realize how clever your children are at transferring the consequences of extra pain, extra work, and wasted time to somebody else. You clean up the mess, okay? Uh, and this is why we also see in the Bible commands given to parents and to governments to make sure that the ones that commit the sin are the ones that experience the extra pain, the extra work, and the wasted time. And that's the principle of our justice and prison system, is to ensure that this takes place, however imperfectly we manage it. And literally what God has done is he's designed the universe, the earth and earth's life for the redemption of billions of human beings. He not only subjects us to this sin, to this uh, extra pain, extra work, and wasted time through the laws of physics. As I told my sons, if I don't discipline you, the laws of physics will. Uh, and, but he's doing this in such a way that we'll come to our senses and realize, yes, these laws of physics motivate me to avoid sin, but I can't stop sinning. I need external help. And this is where we have the message of the Bible saying, I'm prepared to do for you what you can't do for yourself. So these laws of physics are actually designed to draw us to God to do for what, for, for what we're not able to do for ourselves. And this is something that's now uh, uh, governing our book writing. So for example, in Why the Universe and the Improbable Planet, uh, we're making the point that literally every component of the universe, Earth and Earth's life, and every single event in the history of the universe, Earth and Earth's life, plays a role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings, not in millions of years, but in only in thousands of years. As it says in Psalm 97, verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all peoples see his glory. God has given us two books, the book of nature and the book of, of scripture, but even the book of nature tells us there must be a powerful, loving creator who has a plan to redeem billions of us from our sin and evil. Thank you.